Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, April 25th, 2011. Day after Easter. Ah, he is risen. And he is risen indeed. Where, where did I put my pen? Alright, yeah, I know you folks don't know where it is. I'm diligently looking for it here. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said about God in places they're being said. These are places they ought not to be said at. Uh, such as Christian churches and Christian books and uh, Christian lectures and conferences. <clears throat> yeah, the uh, word Christian apparently means whatever you want it to mean nowadays, and that's not what biblically it means. And so we uh, we do the politically incorrect thing and you know, basically go, yeah, what that person said in that sermon, what that person said in this article, what that person said in this book – yeah, that's not what the Bible says, and uh, and so if if their teaching doesn't square with Scripture, uh, we don't chuck the Scriptures out. We ch- <laughs> we chuck out the teachings of that person. Yeah, that's how that works. If if you've come up with your own theology, and the Bible does is you know isn't uh, obeying your theology and conforming with your theology, we don't get rid of the Bible. We get rid of your theology. That's how this works. And I know that, you know, that's just not popular and probably won't sell very many books, but oh well, that's the way it gets done, and that's that's what it means to listen to sound biblical doctrine. So we try to have a little bit of fun along the way, and uh, it's all it's all good. It's all good. And, um, you know, so if, you, uh, if you're a new listener to the program, I strongly recommend that you um, give this program – Six to eight weeks. Give it six to eight weeks because uh, a lot of times if this is your first week of listening or you're new to the program, things that I say are going to step on your toes and you're going to go, ow, that hurt. Wait a second. My pastors told me the thing, told me that, and you just told me that's not what the Bible teaches. And <laughs> Right. And so uh, sometimes being upset with me is a good place to be in. And what that does is that that means you need to get in your Bible and you need to compare what I'm saying in the name of God to the Word of God and see if what I'm telling you is true, plain and simple. All right, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. First of all, I'm excited. This is the week, this is the week, this is the week where we uh, were our, our first real 
true EPUB for sale book is uh, going on sale. And uh, it middle of the week is, you know, when we're shooting for at this point. And um, it is uh, 13 sermons uh, by Martin Luther. We've uh, this is from a an 18 a 19th century translation where we've updated all of the language uh, for you, the 21st century reader. And uh, this is uh, it, it, these are 13 sermons on the passions and suffering of Christ. And got to tell you, as I've been doing the editing work and and laying this all out and getting it ready for uh, for print, this this book is fantastic. These sermons just hit the mark in so many ways. I mean, they are edifying. And not only that, the nice thing about Martin Luther is is that he's uh, safely in his grave and uh, hasn't been influenced influenced by modernist liberalism or postmodern liberalism. And uh, yeah, when you read stuff like this, there's no way that you can make uh, you can turn Martin Luther into um, well uh, uh, an ELCA uh, pastrix, if you would. No, you can't do that. Yeah, it, I mean, and the nice thing about Martin Luther, he doesn't pull any punches. But these things are chock full of law and gospel, and they, like I said, they read like a um, a layman's commentary on the passion and sufferings of Christ. And uh, there's insights. I mean, I'm reading this going, wow, I never thought of that passage in that way. And boy, that's, that's actually very insightful. Good stuff. I promise you uh, that uh, if you get a copy of this book, that uh, that you are going to, you know, I don't want to use the word blessed. It, it'll bless you. Yeah, but you know, that, I think that's the right word. You, I, these are sermons that I think that you will come back to. Because they're that good, and uh, because they're in writing, and uh, you know. Anyway, so here's the deal: we're gonna, uh, middle of the week. We're going to be putting these out, and uh, those of you who um, are members of our crew of the uh, Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew, you will be getting an email uh, middle of the week sometime, and uh, it, it, in that email, you will be get you know you will be told thank you for supporting us. And you will also be given a link to where you can download uh, this uh, book on the uh, you know these sermons on the passion and sufferings of Christ, where you'll be able to download it in either a PDF format, an EPUB format, or a Kindle format. And uh, you know we're we're going with the whole digital publishing thing. And uh, and he's saying, well, I don't have a a, a a a Kindle or an iPad or a way of reading it. Well, if you have a laptop computer, uh, you know, go to Amazon.com and you can download the free Kindle software that'll give you the ability to read it on your laptop. Uh, but uh, you know, we're we're a little bit early in the adoption curve here for uh, for you know EPUB books and stuff like that. But that really is the wave of the future. And uh, I've been reading articles, of, you know, about you know how how uh, these. Uh, you know the iPad and the iPhone and the Kindle and and the Nook in you know have radically changed the landscape of how books are published and delivered. They're still books, and so uh, we, you know uh, we have the ability here at uh, Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio uh, to uh, to take advantage of this new publishing format, and we are going to be doing so and getting good theology into your hands. That's the idea here. Uh, and so, if you're a member of our crew, uh, you, th- expect a uh, an email middle of the week from us. And uh, and if you're and if you want to join our crew, what we're going to do here is since we're publishing this at the end of April, um, any new anybody who joins our crew between now and uh, the, you know, roughly the end of May, 
uh, we will we will also send you that email so that you can download a copy and, and you know get uh, get this book into your hands. It's that good. And if, and if you would like to just purchase it the normal way, uh, you'll be able to do so at uh, piratechristianradio.com as well as fightingforthefaith.com. So stay tuned. Middle of the week. This is just the, these are fantastic, fantastic, fantastic sermons. And not only that, they they set the the, the bar really high. Um, you know for uh, for preachers in just about any denomination, that, that, that's all I can say. These are fantastic. So look forward to that uh, middle of the week. Um, let's see uh, for the <clears throat> program today. <sighs> We've had a Patricia King update, and um, she's got a new video about how to activate your prophetic gift. Apparently, um, your prophetic gift is just waiting there, dormant, just waiting for you to activate it. You know, it's like getting a credit card in the mail from you know Visa or Mastercard, and and you know, and you can't spend any money on the thing because you haven't dialed into the number to activate your account yet. Well, that's apparently uh, you. You have a prophetic gift that you, you ha- that God has promised you, according to Patricia King, and so she's going to teach us how to activate those prophetic gifts today. <clears throat> and uh, and uh, staying kind of in the light note, I uh, I uh, uh, somebody on Facebook, I think a gentleman by the name of Ryan Cavanaugh, he is. He's got a he's got a blog and he did uh, he did something kind of cute. He put together what he calls the purpose driven slash seeker driven ten commandments. We're going to take a look at those today. Um, I've got a, a quick blog post from uh, Thabiti Anabwile and uh, he's quoting a New York Times op ed piece. And uh, the name of his blog post is entitled "The Virtues of Rigorous Theology." Good stuff. Uh, I've got the uh, latest op-ed piece from Albert Muller, Muller entitled "Of First Importance," and then I'm going to begin to uh, read a series uh, uh, that uh, John MacArthur has put out, critiquing Rob Bell. Today's installment is entitled <clears throat> "Rob Bell: Evangelical and Orthodox to the Bone." Yeah, there's a question mark there. And uh, and then during our uh, second hour, when we uh, when we get to our sermon review time, what I'm going to do today and probably on Wednesday. Is um, I'm going to play. <clears throat> well, today I'm going to play two sermons by uh, Jeremy Rohde. I'm going to play his um, his Good Friday sermon, and I'm going to p- uh, play his Easter Sunday sermon together, back to back on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. They're great. They are fantastic. I probably will do the same thing on Wednesday, uh, but not Jeremy Rohde. I'm I'm strongly considering having a, another set of two good sermons. Uh, uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, his Good Friday sermon and his Easter uh, sermon, both of which are fantastic as well. Put them out there for your edification, and you're going to need to you know kind of drink heavily here of the uh, good sermons as I present them this week, um, and, and all the good stuff because next week. We're going into the desert. <laughs> we we are going into the quagmire that is American evangelicalism and the, their Easter sermons. And so, you know, it's it, like a, every year uh, at this time of the year, we have a contest, and i i have to I have to be diligent in sifting through the rubble of the <laughs> of the sermons that are being preached on uh, Easter Sunday in American evangelicalism and then I'm going to bring forward the best contestants. Now, it, it could be five contestants, it could be, you know, six or seven. It depends on if I if I find a couple of shorter sermons to throw into the mix for your consideration. But what we're going to do all next week is we're going to be doing our annual worst Easter sermon of the year contest. And uh, and so I'm going to, you know, 
And you know, if you have suggestions, if you have somebody, if you have a pastor you would like to nominate for the worst Easter sermon of the year, uh, send me the link, and I will I will take a listen. It takes me. It, it it's going to take me from today all the way until you know probably the full the whole you know, whole week next week you know all I got to do by Monday next week is is narrow it down to one contestant so it's it takes me all of two weeks it really truly does two weeks to uh, to sift through them and then find the worst ones to put forward these are the ones that are a total train wreck and uh, the reason why they're total train wreck because they miss the whole point of Easter altogether. The point of Easter is not about you resurrecting your dreams. The point of Easter is not about, and it isn't about you. It's about Jesus Christ being bodily raised from the grave, and all of the theological implications that go with that that are taught in the clear passages of the biblical text. And so many pastors, because they have no clue what the biblical gospel is, when Easter comes around, um, they go off into bizarro world. That's the only way to describe it. And Easter is the time to really highlight this. It, it, you know, Christmas is close, but Easter is where you really get to see whether or not the pastor really truly gets the gospel. Because if he, I mean, if he doesn't really understand the gospel on Easter Sunday, almost one hundred percent guaranteed, uh, the pastor's gonna biff it. It he's gonna fall on his face. Uh, what's gonna be brought forward in the preaching is just going to be nonsense. And so, uh, you know, we've we've yeah, since fighting for the faith has been on the air, we have been doing this uh, worst Easter sermon of the year contest. Past winners include Joel Osteen and Rob Bell. So, uh, you know, stay tuned, stay tuned. So, again, if you have uh, somebody that you want to nominate for this year's uh, contest, for the worst Easter sermon of the year, I don't care if they're high profile, low profile, if you've if you've heard their sermon and you go, oh, that was awful, oh, man, that totally missed the whole point of Easter, send me the link. Send me the link, I'll find a way to consider it. So, uh, you know, just keep that in mind. So, um, anyway, uh, you know, so this week... Today, uh, today uh, we're going to be listening to two good sermons by uh, Pastor Jeremy Rohde, his Good Friday sermon as well as his Easter Sunday sermon, and then probably on Wednesday we're going to be listening to Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edwards Charmley's uh, Good Friday sermon as well as his Easter sermon, and then uh, sometime this week we'll do a Friday light, uh, not Friday light, but we'll do a light edition, and I'll probably throw in another Mark Deaver sermon uh, regarding the uh, Pierce for our tra- you know from his Pierce for our transgressions. Thing. So we're probably only going to have two bad sermons this week as a way of of kind of building you up <laughs> not so that you, you can get through the desert that is going to be next week. Next week is, yeah, we are going, we're, we're, we're going to the moon. That's the only way I can put it. So, you know, anyway. So uh, with that, let's uh, dive into the program proper. Did you know that you have a prophetic gift that's sitting dormant that you have to activate? It's just like a credit card that you get in the mail that you haven't dialed in and activated the number yet. It's true. (laughs) Well, at least Patricia King thinks so. Uh, (laughs) But one of the latest videos from Patricia King and her extreme pathetic ministry is entitled Activating Your Prophetic Gift. And by the way, if you have your Bible... 
you might want to open it up to First uh, Corinthians chapter twelve. First Corinthians chapter twelve. Just so you know, she's going to quote a single solitary verse out of context from First Corinthians chapter fourteen. In fact, verse one to be exact. But I'm going to show you from context in First Corinthians chapter twelve that the claims she's making about this prophetic gift that you have to activate. Um, well, it just doesn't jive with what the Bible actually teaches when you read it in context. Yeah, yeah. here's <clears throat> Patricia King. I want to pray for you today to be activated in your prophetic gift. And I realize that some of you might have never prophesied before, but you're going to. Uh, man, you to get activated in your prophetic gift. And some of you are very mature in the prophetic. But I believe that no matter how mature we are, we can increase all the more. You know, the gift of prophecy is one of the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit that was given to the church. And when you have the Holy Spirit in you, you have those nine gifts. There's All nine of them, really? Yeah, keep your Bible open to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Gifts. And so it's a matter of learning how to activate them by faith. I had a mentor in the gifts of the Spirit named Mary Goddard. She's gone on to glory now. But she was one of the most fantastic teachers and the, uh, the greatest mentor that I could have ever asked for. In the Yeah, it, whoever Patricia King recommends, you, you may not want to listen to that person at all. Activation of the gifts of the Spirit. In fact, I have her original teachings that we've transferred over onto CD format or MP3 format that you can purchase online. It's called The Gifts of the Spirit by Mary Goddard. That is my mentor. It's a huge, massive course. But I tell you, if you saturate yourself in that teaching, you'll never be the same. I was just... Yeah, she's probably telling you the truth there. If you saturate yourself in that teaching, that false teaching, I guarantee you will never be the same. That's that's probably a truer statement I have never heard from Patricia King. Uh, thinking about my days of being mentored in the gifts of the Spirit a while ago, and I thought, I need to re-listen to those original teachings because they brought so much life to me. In fact, I remember being in sessions with Mary Goddard where it was like almost like I was sitting at the feet of Jesus and he was speaking through her. So- okay. Hmm. So you can uh, purchase those on our online bookstore called The Gifts of the Holy Spirit by Mary Goddard. I think there's about 25 or 30 uh, lessons, and they it is probably the best teaching and the most... Uh, uh, the most intense or the most uh, detailed teaching on the gifts of the Spirit that you'll probably ever receive. If you want good biblical detailed teaching on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14. In context, you don't need Mary Goddard or Patricia King. If you own a Bible, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, there is no secret to it. Uh, biblical Christianity doesn't have any secrets. I mean, all of our doctrine is laid out bare in the plain teaching of the text of the Bible, plain and simple. But uh, let's see what she's going to do here. But what I love is that there's a spirit of faith on the inside of them that just ignites you. I have another tool that might help you also. and it, I can hardly wait. It's our, our, our books on eyes that see and ears that hear that I wrote, and also... Mm, Yeah. Why do I feel like your eyes don't see and your ears really don't hear, Patricia? Uh, Hearing the voice of God, it's a CD set, uh, or a CD tape, that uh, you might be able to enjoy 
also it might help you as you're growing in prophetic uh, utterance and discernment. But anyways, let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. It says, yeah, please, you know, one verse. Here we go. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. I remember when I was sitting in Mary Goddard's teaching. Now, I'm going to point something out here. First Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1 is um, two-thirds of the way through an entire teaching that the Apostle Paul gave under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he was writing 1 Corinthians. Okay, um, Let me point this out to you. If you have your Bible, flip on over to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read probably all of this chapter. So I just want to point this out because you're going to see what's going wrong here. Now, here's what Paul says. Now, keep in mind, there there was abuses of the spiritual gifts in the Corinthian church. Um, If you would like a little bit more detail on this, what I would recommend, free resource online, uh, go to issuesetc.com. Uh, .org, issuesetc.org, issuesetc.org, and they they did a series called Issues Etc. 24. Uh, it was a, it was part of a fundraiser that they were doing for Issues Etc., and they had 24 hours of in-depth teaching uh, looking at different books of the Bible. And uh, Dr. Peter Scare of uh, Concordia uh, Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, he was brought in, and they did two hours they did two full hours on the book of 1 Corinthians. These, these, these lectures are fantastic. The, the one on the Psalms was ridiculously great. Pastor Wolf Mueller on Isaiah, brilliant. Uh, Peter Scare's uh, segment that he did on, uh, 1 Corinthians, on 1 Corinthians, another great piece. Go and listen to that because it's a, it's a two-hour flight over the entire book of 1 Corinthians. Well worth the listen, and it'll help you understand contextually wh- what was the problem. What, you know, there was lots of problems. I mean, f- uh, the church at Corinth was uh, uh, just nuts. That's all. They 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 were <laughs> they were all over the map, and uh, and so the apostle Paul writes to them and and puts some biblical uh, some boundaries, some some structure in place to. Uh, to correct some of the errors going on in the uh, Corinthian church. So, and one of them was they were abusing the gifts of the Spirit. They were not using them right, okay? And so here's what the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes. He says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed, okay? You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, or no one can say Jesus is Lord. By the way, that statement, Jesus is Lord, yeah, that's that's a claim to Jesus' deity. No one can say Jesus is God, okay? Lord is uh, the uh, was the term used in the Septuagint uh, when tr- you know translating the name the holy name for God Yahweh uh, the Tetragrammaton. So when you say Jesus is Lord, you are making a claim regarding Jesus's deity. Just want to let you all know. That. So no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the uh, in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, another 
uh, faith by the same Spirit, another gifts of healing by one Spirit, another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. And all of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Not you will, not me will, but by what the Spirit will. So according to this little segment right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the gifts of the Spirit are given by the, the will of the Spirit okay, for the common good of those in the church, for the building up of the body of Christ. When you if you know, the when the spirit gives you a gift, it is not for you. That gift is for the body of Christ. It's for the common good. Okay. Now, for just as the one uh, just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we are all made to drink of the one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Now, if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were uh, were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet there is one body. So you'll notice here that Paul here is likening the different gifts of the spirits being given for the common good and the building of the body of Christ. He's likening them to different body parts within a body. Hands and ears and eyes and feet and mouth and head and those kind of ideas. So if everybody had the same gift, that would be like having a a body only made up of left hands that doesn't make any sense you know if if all you can't say you have a body if all you have is a left hand or a bunch of left hands a bunch of left hands do not a body make now <clears throat> on the contrary paul writes is on the contrary the parts of the body that seem to be weaker they're the ones that are indispensable and and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our presentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, and that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ— and individually you are members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And then Paul asks a series of questions. Okay, Now, I've pointed this out many times here at Fighting for the Faith, but we have new listeners all the time. And it's important to come back to some of these topics. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 29 and 30, okay, it's important to note that the answer to the questions that are posed in this section, that the answer is no. How do I know that? 
The answer is because I can read Greek. In the Greek, each of these questions is asked with something that is attached to the question that is an untranslatable particle. Okay, in the Greek, this particle is is, is pronounced may. Okay, and may when it appears in a question. It tells the the reader that the question that's being asked is to be understood as being answered in the negative. Okay, so in the Greek, when Paul asks all these questions, he gives the answer there in an untranslated particle, and that particle is may. Okay, if you if you're not sure, you know, you would like more information on this, talk to somebody who knows Greek, get a copy of a good. Uh, Greek grammar, uh, uh, basics of biblical Greek by Mounts is a fantastic primer on uh, on the Greek language, and you know, or you can get a hold of you know, you go to the library and 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 look some some of the stuff up. But it's there for you to uh, to take a look at, or or get a good commentary that addresses the uh, the the Greek that's in the text, not just an English translation. And you'll see that uh, what I'm saying all. All biblical scholars are in agreement that that's what's going on in the Greek language here. Okay, so let me answer, ask these questions, and I'll, po- I'll pose the answer that's given in the in the Greek text. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. So, what's going on here is the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is making it clear that God the Holy Spirit is the one who, by his divine sovereign will, decides who in the body of Christ gets what gift, and he distributes those gifts in you know differently so that the body of Christ functions as a body that we have all of the parts necessary to build up and take care of the common good of the church okay so that's his argument and the concluding point here in you know a third of the way through his argument is that not everybody possesses the same gifts and not all our prophets not all our apostles not all our teachers and no not all possess the gift of tongues it is a complete it is a complete mishandling of God's spiritual gifts to make the claim that all people have the gift of prophecy and it's also equally a mishandling of God's word and contrary to what God's word clearly teaches when someone says that everybody in the body of Christ has the gift of tongues that is patently false the biblical text says the exact opposite of it and it says it here now, I point all this out because Patricia King basically in this video is saying that you have a prophetic gift that's lying dormant waiting for you to activate it. Well, that's not true because according to the biblical text, not all are prophets. And what Patricia King is saying is is contradicted by the clear teaching of the Word of God. And the reason why she only ripped one verse out of context to try to make this look like it's a biblical teaching is because if she were to actually do the careful in-context study there in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, uh, it would contradict her understanding of the spiritual gifts. Her understanding is is directly contradicted by the biblical teaching, and her understanding, her doctrine, her teaching on this is false. It's wrong. And she taught us this scripture, and I looked at it, and I thought, wow, I'm to pursue love. That's my greatest aim. 
but I'm to earnestly desire spiritual giftings and especially the prophetic. And that it just unlocks something on the inside. I thought, I'm allowed to desire the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I'm allowed to want to bless people with these awesome gifts. And I was electrified by this scripture. And I want you to know that the Spirit of God wants you to pursue love more than anything because the gifts of the Spirit are an expression of the love of God. But in that love, earnestly desire or covet is another word that one of the translations uses. Covet earnestly all those spiritual gifts and especially the prophetic. Go after it. And so they're all available. All the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are already available to you. It's just a matter of receiving them by faith. I would encourage now that what what she just said I was completely contradicted by what the apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of the spirit encourage you to get some good instruction on the gifts of the spirit I agree the good instruction is right there in your bible 1 Corinthians 12 13 and 14 read it in context on the prophetic on hearing the voice of God and uh, seeing with your spiritual vision get good instruction but don't just sit and get instruction do the stuff activate your gift yeah, so there you go, uh, Patricia King, telling us the importance of activating our gift. Like uh, you know, this idea, this is silly. I mean, the Bible nowhere teaches that the, that you know, prophetic gifts are like you know, credit cards that you receive in the mail, just waiting for you to activate them. That's not what the biblical text teaches at all. And so, what she's saying is just, well, it's it, it's it's silly, and it, it's kind of like this. the Prophetic Gift Activation Hotline. Before we continue, please find and identify your personal prophecy PIN number and enter it now. Before we continue, please let us know how you heard about the Personal Prophetic Gift Activation Hotline. If you heard about us through Patricia King, please press 6 now. If she was covered in glory dust when you first heard about us, please press 6 now. If she was drunk on the glory when you heard about us, please press 6 now. Thank you. Unfortunately, at this time we cannot activate your personal prophetic gift. Please read your Bible for further details. We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. All right, moving along. From the theologyjunkie.blogspot.com blog. Headline reads, The Purpose-Driven Slash Seeker-Driven Ten Commandments. This was put together by a listener and uh, somebody on my Facebook wall by the name of Ryan Kavanaugh, who runs the site theologyjunkie.blogspot.com. <clears throat> so here we go. The uh, Seeker-Driven, Purpose-Driven Ten Commandments. Since the Seeker-Driven, uh, uh, Seeker-Sensitive Churches haven't done it yet, I thought I would do them a favor and write down the Ten Commandments of the Seeker-Sensitive slash Purpose-Driven Church. Here, uh, here's the list. Number one, <clears throat> I am the God, your bearded girlfriend, who delivered you from a life without purpose. Number one, you shall love the vision God has given you with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind and your strength. Commandment number two, you shall engrave the vision God has given you on large tablets and in your journal so that uh, so all that see it shall run. 
it came from heaven and it shall make it manifest on the earth. You shall bow down and serve it and fulfill the purpose that God has given your life. For God is a God of purpose, showing my purpose to the third and fourth generation of all who fulfill their purpose. Commandment number three, you shall not keep your God in a box, for the Lord will not hold him blameless who keeps God in a box. Commandment number four, you shall honor the day of football and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day, Thanksgiving, Christmas Day, and some Thursdays, is the day of football. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male or your female servant should still go to work so that you can have the day off, but not the visitor within your gates. For six days in the week pass so that you may rest and watch football. Therefore, the football day is made holy. Commandment number five. You shall always confess positive things over your life so that it might go well with you and that you have a long and prosperous life. Commandment number six, you shall always do all you can to anger religious people. Commandment number seven, uh, you shall not commit adultery and tell anyone so that you may receive forgiveness. God wants you to be happy and wouldn't let you stay in an unhappy marriage. Number eight, you shall always give your full 10% tithe and not rob God. Commandment number nine, you shall not tell big lies, but God understands that you need to tell little ones every now and then. Commandment number 10, you shall not settle for anything less than the best house, the best wife, the best job, the best employees, the best car, the best toys, and have them all better than your neighbor and live your best life now. So there you go, Ryan Kavanaugh's. Uh, seeker-sensitive, purpose-driven Ten Commandments. I thought it was worth passing along to you. What do you think? Would love to get your feedback. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Circus Church would like to again apologize. Normally, we try to do parody here at Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, the church continues to just parody itself. Case in point, Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed shofar CD. This is a real commercial. 
When Rabbi Michael Zeitler blows the shofar, miracles take place. He wants to see God break every stronghold of the enemy in your life, healing you emotionally, physically, even in your relationships, bringing salvation to your entire household. Call now and receive both Rabbi Michael Zeitler's anointed audio CD, Sound of the Shofar, plus his brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, for a donation of $25. Shipping and handling is included. Ask for offer number 9081. Listen to this anointed audio CD. Allow God's glory to fill the room as Rabbi Seitler shares from the scriptures and then blows the shofar over every issue you are facing, including mental and emotional disorders, confusion, fear, stress, grief, nightmares, insomnia, pain, sickness and disease, addictions, eating disorders, weight loss, injustices, persecution, finances, marriages, rebellious children, freedom from the occult and demonic oppression, and so much more. Through Rabbi Seitler's brand new prophetic book, Why Israel is Supernatural, you will learn how you and your family can obtain supernatural protection in the midst of the end time judgments about to be unleashed on planet earth don't miss out on getting both rabbi michael zeitler's anointed audio cd sound of the shofar plus his brand new prophetic book why israel is supernatural for a donation of 25 dollars shipping and handling is included ask for offer number 9081 call or write today If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. That's what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Christianity is unique in that it is based upon historical fact. None of the other religions are that in which if you could disprove one historical fact, the whole religion would crumble. But that's how it is with Christianity. If you can disprove that Christ did not raise from the dead, then there is no such thing as Christianity. That's a topic of a debate for a live Table Talk radio presentation. Did Jesus rise from the dead? The debaters is Dr. David Scare of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of the book, What Do You Think About Jesus? versus Dr. Robert Price, fellow for the Jesus Seminar and author of the book, The Case Against the Case for Christ. This all takes place on Pirate Christian Radio, Sunday night, May 15th, from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can call in live to pose your questions to the debaters. Listen to Table Talk Radio Live, a debate, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead, on Pirate Christian Radio, May 15th, from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Ooh. 
Warning, anybody in the church telling you that everybody's got the gift of prophecy, everybody's got the gifts of uh, speaking in tongues, they're not telling you the truth. The Bible says exactly the opposite. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we absolutely depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world, and uh, we're in a partnership with you. The way you partner with us is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And by signing up, you get perks. You get access to uh, you know, each of our um, books that we publish as they come available as, you know, because, as our way of saying thank you for joining our crew. So we got some great stuff in the pipeline for you all. You don't want to miss out on that. And uh, the way you get that is by joining our crew. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, you know, uh, moving along here, um, uh, Thabiti Anabwile, he's, uh, he's, got, he's part of the Gospel Coalition, and he has a blog, and he just put up a post recently entitled The Virtues of, of Rigorous Theology, and he's quoting from David Brooks' New York Times op-ed piece entitled Creed or Chaos. Fantastic little uh, bite here from, uh, from that New York Times op-ed piece, and here's what it says about rigorous theology. Rigorous theology provides believers with a map of reality. These maps may seem dry and schematic. Most maps do compared with reality, but they contain the accumulated wisdom of thousands of co-believers who through the centuries have faced similar journeys and trials. Rigorous theology allows believers to examine the world intellectually as well as emotionally. Many people want to understand the eternal logic of the universe, using reason and logic to wrestle with concrete assertions and teachings. Rigorous theology helps people avoid mindless conformity. Without timeless rules, we all have a tendency to be swept up in the temper of the moment. But tough-minded theologies are countercultural. They insist on principles and practices that provide an antidote to mere fashion. Rigorous theology delves into mysteries in ways that are beyond most of us. For example, in her essay, Creed or Chaos, Dorothy Sayers argues that Christianity's advantage is that it gives value to evil and suffering. Christianity asserts that perfection is attained through the active and positive effort to wrench real good out of a real evil. This is a complicated thought most of us could not come up with, let alone unpack, outside of rigorous theological tradition. Great point, good point, worth passing along, and amen and amen to that. Folks, I, Christian theology, well, let me put it this way, you can, it, it, can't be, it can't be done rigorously if it's just something that your, uh, your pastor banged out on his word processor and posted on Twitter uh, last week. No, there, the biblical Christianity didn't wasn't invented yesterday. It didn't come into existence the day that you were baptized or the day that you made a decision for Jesus. Biblical Christianity has been here for millennia. 
and the church has existed for millennia. The gates of hell have not prevailed against the church. As a result of it, the mindless, shallow, vapid theology du jour that we're experiencing today that really isn't even a theology. It's not rigorous. It's banal. It's shallow. It's like swimming in a kiddie pool that's only been, you know, somebody took a hose and filled it up with two inches of cold water. That's how rigorous so much of Christianity's theology is today. But um, biblical Christianity has a very rigorous theology has a very rigorous theology, and it's as broad as the Bible and as deep as you could possibly believe. The more you rigorously study God's Word and what it teaches and what God has revealed in there, knowing that it is God's Word, the deeper and more rigorous your theology becomes, and it's not just pure emotionalism or sentimentality. It engages both your mind as well as your heart. And believe me, when you have both engaged, it's far better than just shallow, emotional, mystical experiences. Those aren't even real. I don't, not the way they're being pushed in so many of today's secret-driven churches. So great posts by Thabidian Abuile on his uh, Pure Church blog, which you can find at the Gospel Coalition, worth passing along. All right, uh, latest op-ed piece from Albert Muller is entitled Of First Importance, The Cross and Resurrection at the Center. Here's what Dr. Muller writes. He says, The Christian faith is not a mere collection of doctrines. Hear, hear, amen. Yes. Or a bag of truths. Christianity is a comprehensive truth claim that encompasses every aspect of revealed doctrine, but is centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as the apostolic preaching makes clear, the gospel is the priority. The Apostle Paul affirms this priority when he writes to the Christians in Corinth in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul sets out his case. Here's what he says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that that I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep." Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Paul points directly to the events of the cross and the resurrection of Christ. He is not concerned with just any gospel, but with the only gospel that saves. This is the gospel I preach to you, Paul reminds the Corinthians. The same Paul who so forcefully warned the Galatians against accepting any false gospel reminds the church at Corinth that the very gospel I preach to you is the gospel by which you are being saved. The stewardship of the gospel is underlined in Paul's words, if you hold Hold fast to the word that I preached to you. Paul's statement of priority is a vital corrective for our confused times. Without hesitation, Paul writes with urgency about the truths that are as of first importance. All revealed truth is vital, invaluable, life-changing truth to which every disciple of Christ is fully accountable. But certain truths are of the highest importance, and that is the language Paul uses without qualification. 
And what is of first importance? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The cross and the empty tomb stand at the center of the Christian faith, and without these there is no good news and there is no salvation. Paul gets right to the heart of the matter in setting out those truths that are of first importance. Following his example, we can do no less. These twin truths remain as of first importance, and no sermon is complete without the explicit affirmation of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it was then, so it is now, and so it shall be until Christ claims his church. As Paul reminded the Corinthians and now instructs us, the gospel is at the center of our faith, and the cross and the empty tomb are at the center of the gospel. So we preach, and so you believed. Paul encourages us. And may the power of the cross and the victory of the empty tomb fill every pulpit, every pew, and every Christian heart. And may the good news of the gospel be received with joy by sinners in need of a Savior. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 56-58. Great op-ed piece by Dr. Muller, worth passing along. All right, it's now time for another, um, well, another Rob Bell update. That music can mean only one thing. We now... Are transitioning into a Rob Bell update. Supernova drops like stars. It's uh, the Rob Bell update. Uh, John MacArthur, uh, uh, grace to you, fame. Uh, he has, oh man, published a series of blistering. <laughs> Yikes! I mean that the, the talk. Um, well, mm, let's just put it this way: if Rob Bell believes that uh, hell is on Earth, <laughs> well, these blog posts that uh, John MacArthur has, have put together that expose his false doctrine and challenge his claims to orthodoxy. Well, these probably come pretty darn close to being hell for Rob Bell, and they should be because uh, John MacArthur is right, 
uh, Rob Bell is not a Christian brother that we should embrace. He really, truly is a wolf. And so the name of uh, this first blog post that we're going to read today, we'll probably read all of them over the course of the week, uh, is entitled, Rob Bell, Evangelical and Orthodox to the Bone? Hardly. <laughs> In the pullout quote, here's what it says. Rob Bell is reminiscent of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. He has a warped view of goodness. He talks as if his own standard of good is the norm, and Bell even suggests that God is not good if he sends people to hell. Jesus replied to the young inquirer, uh, No one is good except God alone. Verse 18 says, God himself alone is the standard of true good, not any creature, certainly not a fallen creature. The young ruler was not saved, nor can any person be who thinks his or her own preferences determine what is truly good. That kind of arrogance reflects a damning egotism. (laughs) So um, right off the bat in this particular blog post, John MacArthur pulls out of his his howitzer and just lets it fly. We continue. In his books, sermons, and videos, Rob Bell has consistently promoted views that are uh, antithetical to biblical Christianity and hostile to historic evangelical principles. For example, although he claims to affirm the historic Christian faith, which includes the virgin birth and the Trinity and the inspiration of the Bible, see Velvet Elvis, page 26, Bell is clearly more interested in casting doubt on the fundamental truths of biblical Christianity than he is in defending them. Consider what else Bell says on the very same page of Velvet Elvis. Quote, What if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry? And archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw in to appeal to the followers of Mithra and and the Dionysian religious cults that were hugely popular at the time of Jesus, whose God had virgin births. But what if, as you study the origin of the word virgin, you discover that the word virgin in the Gospel of Matthew actually comes from the book of Isaiah, and then you might find out that in the Hebrew language at the same time, the word virgin could mean several things. And what if you discover that in the first century, being born of a virgin also referred to a child whose mother became pregnant the first time she had intercourse? That's a direct quote from Velvet Elvis, written by Rob Bell. MacArthur continues, he says, Bell compares the Christian faith to a large trampoline with its cardinal doctrines, truths evangelicals have historically deemed essential, functioning like springs that support the jumping platform of a trampoline. The individual springs aren't absolutely essential, Bell says, including the virgin birth. Here's what he says, quote, What if that spring, the virgin birth, were seriously questioned? Could a person keep on jumping? Could a person still love God? Could you still be a Christian? Is the way of Jesus still the best possible way to live? Or does the whole thing fall apart? If the whole thing, if the whole faith falls apart when we re-examine and rethink one spring, then it wasn't that strong in the first place, was it? Velvet Elvis, page 26 and 27. MacArthur then continues, he says, So on the one hand, in a single sentence, he professes to affirm the virgin birth. On the other hand, and on the very same page, he spends multiple paragraphs calling the truthfulness and importance of that doctrine into question. That's Bell's 
modus operandi. He labels himself an evangelical while simultaneously undermining the foundational tenets of evangelical conviction. In light of this, Love Wins should not have been a surprise to anyone. The book is consistent with several things Bell has been teaching for some time. For example, he has frequently espoused a distorted understanding of hell, one in which hell is not a literal place where wicked souls are punished, but more of a self-induced state of mind pertaining mainly to this life. Uh, from his 19, uh, 2007 uh, Ooze interview, Bell said, quote, I don't know why, as a Christian, you would have to make such declarative statements. Why would you want there to be a literal hell? I'm a bit skeptical of somebody who argues that passionately for a literal hell. Why would you be on that side? Like if you're going to pick causes, if you're going to literally going to say these are the lines in the sand, I've got to know that people are going to burn forever. This is one of the things that you drive your stake in the ground on. I don't understand that. And then from his book, Sex God, Rob Bell writes on pages 21 and 22, quote, To the Jewish mind, heaven is not a fixed, unchanging geographical location or some, someone other than this, uh, somewhere other than this world. Heaven is a realm where things are as God intends them to be. Now, if there is a realm where things are as God wants them to be, then there must be a realm where things are not as God wants them to be, where things aren't according to God's will, where people aren't treated as fully human. It's called hell. <clears throat> and if you think that's a bit weird, Bell's understanding of heaven is even more bizarre. From the book Sex God, Rob Bell writes on page 168, if sex is about connection, what happens when everybody is connected with everybody else? Is sex in its greatest, purest, most joyful and honest expression a glimpse of forever? Are these brief moments of abandon and oneness with ecstasy just a couple of seconds or minutes of how things will be forever? Is sex a picture of heaven? In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul claimed to have seen a vision of heaven, and the phrase he used to describe it in Greek is translated unwordable words. He wrote that he saw things man is not permitted to tell. Maybe that's why these scriptures are so ambivalent about whether a person is married, about whether a person is having sex. Maybe Jesus knew what is coming and knew that whatever we experience here will pale compared to what awaits everyone. Do you long for that? Because that's the center of Jesus' message and invitation. Bell has also consistently promoted a form of universalism. For example, in Velvet Elvis on page 137, he writes, So this reality, this forgiveness, this reconciliation is true, and it's for everybody. Heaven is full of forgiven people. Hell is full of forgiven people. Heaven is full of people God loves, for whom Jesus died. Hell is full of forgiven people God loves, for whom Jesus died. The difference is how we choose to live. Which story we choose to live in, which version of reality we trust, ours or God's. Rob Bell and Don Golden, Jesus Wants to Save Christians, on page 147, writes, Jesus is the representative of the entire human family. His blood covers the entire created door. Jesus is saving everyone and everything. From his July 2007 interview on the ooze, Bell responds in response to the question, do you believe in a literal hell that is defined simply as eternal separation from God? Bell says, well, there are people now who are seriously separated from God. So I would assume that 
God will leave room for people to say, I, I, don't, I don't want any part of this. My question would be, does grace win, or is the human heart stronger than God's love or grace? Who wins? Does darkness and sin and hardness of heart win, or does God's love and grace win? In Velvet Elvis on page 18, he writes, God is bigger than any religion. God is bigger than any worldview. God is bigger than the Christian faith. So when he promotes Love Wins with the following words, why would we be surprised? From the promo video, he says, And then there is the question behind the questions, the real question. What is God like? Because millions and millions of people were taught that the primary message, the center of the gospel of Jesus, is that God is going to send you to hell unless you believe in Jesus. And so what gets subtly sort of caught and taught is that Jesus rescues you from God. But what kind of God is that, that we would need to be rescued from this God? How could that God ever be good? How could that God ever be trusted? How could that ever be good news? Or when Bell suggests the possibility of postmodern salvation, should we be shocked? From Love Wins, page 107, he writes, There will be endless opportunities and an endless amount of time for people to say yes to God. At the heart of this perspective is the belief that given enough time, people will turn to God and find themselves in the joy and peace of God's presence. The love of God will melt every hard heart, and even the most depraved sinners will eventually give up their resistance and turn to God. In our next two posts in this series, we will look at more examples of Bell's skepticism, heterodoxy, and twisted teaching, and I think that you will see even more clearly why it is spiritually dangerous to question the Bible's teaching on hell. When a person begins to question the justice of God and the punishment of the wicked, practically every point of the gospel truth is suddenly put at risk, and Bell's teaching provides vivid, vivid proof of that. All right, so that's uh, John MacArthur's first installment in his uh, howitzer attack against uh, Rob Bell, and he make, he's making some great points here and doing a fantastic job of documenting Rob Bell's false doctrine all along the way. All right, we are up on our second break, and when we come back, we have two fantastic sermons by Pastor Jeremy Rohde of Faith Lutheran Church in uh, Capistrano Beach, California. The first is his uh, Good Friday sermon, and the second is his Easter Sunday sermon. They are both fantastic. You do not want to miss them. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. 
Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. That's what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Christianity is unique in that it is based upon historical fact. None of the other religions are that in which if you could disprove one historical fact, the whole religion would crumble. But that's how it is with Christianity. If you can disprove that Christ did not raise from the dead, then there is no such thing as Christianity. That's a topic of a debate for a live Table Talk radio presentation. Did Jesus rise from the dead? The debaters is Dr. David Scare of Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and author of the book, What Do You Think About Jesus? versus Dr. Robert Price, fellow for the Jesus Seminar and author of the book, The Case Against the Case for Christ. This all takes place on Pirate Christian Radio, Sunday night, May 15th, from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can call in live to pose your questions to the debaters. Listen to Table Talk Radio Live, a debate, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead, on Pirate Christian Radio, May 15th, from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Two of Fighting for the Faith. Got two fantastic sermons for you today. Both of them preached by Reverend Jeremy Rohde. Hang on, I'll cue up the music here in a second. ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service coming out of uh the uh easter season out of lent and into well, actually we're going into easter now if you follow the lectionary the liturgical calendar we got 50 days of easter now 
The festivities have just begun. Christ and him crucified and raised again from the dead. So what we're going to do here is uh, this uh, today and probably Wednesday, we're going to uh, focus on some good sermons that point us to Christ and him crucified for our sins that will give us, uh, let's say, a positive rubric by which we can then judge the uh, bad sermons that we're going to be listening to next week for our annual uh, Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. So the, uh, these sermons are both preached by Jeremy Rohde, Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California. The first one's just called A, Go- a Sermon for Good Friday, um, and the uh, second one is called Christus Victor, and that's his um, Easter Sunday sermon. So let, let me kill the music here, and uh, we, will, uh, we, will get, we will get right to it. So here is Pastor Jeremy Rohde. A Sermon for Good Friday. Tetelestai, Jesus cried. It is finished. And it was. His work was complete. He had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He had been wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. The atonement was made, the sacrifice complete. The Lamb of God lay dead and bleeding for your sins and mine. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was finished. But it was not over. The universe stood still. The prophets held their breath. The angels covered their eyes. Why? Because a single soldier now marched toward the Lamb of God to break his legs. And why would that matter? Because according to God... God's own word, the only Passover lamb acceptable to him is a lamb without a single broken bone. You shall not break any of its bones, the Lord solemnly commands. It is finished, but it is not over. The soldiers were on the move. They came and broke the legs of the first man. Jesus was in the middle. Would he be next? Would our Passover lamb have its legs broken and thus be rendered an unacceptable sacrifice to the Lord? The soldiers now moved toward Jesus, but they passed by him and broke the legs of the other man who had been crucified. Two down. One to go. Jesus would be next. It was the Jews who had asked that their legs be broken. The very next day was the Sabbath, the high day of the week-long Passover feast. Could it be that they had heard the Baptist sermon, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Could it be that they had eaten the Passover, 
careful not to break a single bone in their lamb? Could it be that they knew the one way to make sure that Jesus' death would not be an acceptable sacrifice? That this Jesus was not really the Lamb of God? Or does that just sound too devilishly devious, too satanically smart? Yes, that's exactly what it sounds like. If the Scriptures are to be fulfilled, then not one of His bones will be broken. Break one little bone and break the Scriptures. Satan might have allowed himself a little smile at that thought. The one who had bested him in the wilderness hangs dead. The one who had cast out his demons left and right with nothing but a word now bows his head in death. The lamb is dead. That deadly mouth of his has been silenced. And now, for the final stroke, to render all of his unblemished life and sacrificial death null and void by breaking a single bone, It all comes down to one final hammer stroke. But the hammer never swung. Why? Because the soldiers suddenly had compassion on the body they'd been torturing for hours? Why? Because the soldiers knew for certain that he was already dead? No. The spear thrust into his side puts an end to both of those theories. Why is the hammer never swung? There is only one reason. Because the word of God cannot be broken. For these things took place that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again another Scripture says, They will look on him whom they pierced. The word of God cannot be broken. You mean Satan, the God of this world, the greatest of all deceivers, and all of his evil horde, couldn't tempt a single one of those sinful pagan soldiers to swing that hammer. No, they could not, because the word of God cannot be broken. The scriptures tell it all. Not one of his bones will be broken. They will look on him whom they have pierced. For centuries upon centuries, those words stood, declaring exactly what would happen that Friday afternoon. And when that spear was thrust cruelly into Jesus' side, it might just as well have been thrust right through Satan's heart. Jesus' death was a sacrifice acceptable to God. He truly was the Passover lamb.
born in a lambing cave on the outskirts of Bethlehem. Born amongst the very same lambs that are taken to Jerusalem to be sacrificed. Born to Mary, this little unblemished lamb. Yes, Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. Born to be sheared of his fleece, stripped of his clothes, that he might clothe others. Though your sins are as scarlet, he shall clothe you with his fleece, a fleece as white as snow. Born to have our sins laid upon him. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Born to be led like a lamb to the slaughter. And like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Born to be our Passover lamb. That is what the scripture itself calls him. What does it mean that he is your Passover lamb? Take it from John, the eyewitness of his crucifixion who tells us that not one of his bones was broken, that he was pierced, and blood and water flowed from his side. John writes, And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, he who accused them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. By the blood of the Lamb, dear Christians, your accuser has been silenced. By the blood of the Lamb, your sins have been atoned for and put away. By the blood of the Lamb and by His blood only, He has given you the victory. What does it mean that He is your Passover Lamb? It means that He gives His life so that you might live. It means that He gives His body for you to eat and paints His blood on the doorway of your lips so that the angel of death will merely pass over you. It means that you should not get too comfortable in this world, but eat with your sandals on Because the great exodus from the grave is about to begin. Tonight is a night of darkness, like the night of the first Passover, like the night on which he was betrayed, like the darkness that covered Golgotha. But in the midst of the darkness, we hear a voice. 
Not one of his bones shall be broken. They shall look on him whom they have pierced. It is the very word of God. And so we know the Lamb has given himself for us. And by his blood we will overcome. In the midst of the darkness we hear a voice. And neither life nor death nor Satan himself can overcome it. Tetelestai, we hear him cry. And we know that this word of God cannot be broken. It is finished. Okay, that was uh, sermon number one. That was his Good Friday sermon. Love the the play on words and that whole part about Mary having a little lamb. Wow, it's I mean, it sounds kind of childish, but it, it, he, the way he used that points us to the fact that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, and that none of his bones were broken. You want to understand what's going on in Jesus's death on the cross? You look to Exodus chapter twelve and the Passover, where the blood of the lamb protects people from being swept up by the destroyer. In the same way, when God sees us and Christ, our Passover lamb, his blood on us, he passes over. And we're not judged. We're declared forgiven. All right, now here's his, um, here is his Easter Sunday sermon entitled Christus Victor, don't worry, it doesn't have that crazy uh, emergent Christus Victor thing going on. This is good, solid, Christ wins kind of stuff. In the name of Jesus, amen. He is risen. He is risen risen indeed. indeed. Alleluia. Who is risen? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. He who opened the Red Sea with the blast of his nostrils and brought its crushing fury down on Israel's enemies. He who stood with Joshua against the invincible fortress of Jericho and brought its great walls to dust with trumpet blast and shout. He who heard the cry of his helpless people when the dread king of Assyria and his countless legions surrounded them. Yes, that very night, he walked into their camp alone, and by morning, 185,000 enemies of Israel lay dead. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, The Lord, mighty in battle. But nothing, nothing in all the annals of heaven or earth compares to the victory that he won when he stepped forth from the tomb that first Easter morn. There is no enemy more devouring than death. No enemy more ferocious than hell. Yet here he stands. Here stands the body 
that death did claim. Here stands the body that death did slay. With the rising of the fiery Easter sun, the Lord rises victorious in His body. Reorient yourself, O man, you whom He has created. The universe is His, and all its fullness, it always has been. Of His victory, all creation sings, for He has ordained it. The seed that dies in the earth and springs to a flower does so because of Him who was planted in the tomb Him who blooms to life again. The sun dies in the evening and rises in the morning because of the sun who dies in the darkness of Golgotha and rises in the glory of Easter dawn. Even the seasons themselves tell of His victory. The death of winter gives way to the living spring because he who died now lives again. Reorient yourself, O man. He is not like these created things. They are like him. For he made them. As of old he designed this creation to prophesy what he would do. And now that he has done it, all this creation sings his praise and preaches the song of his salvation into mankind's blind eyes and deaf ears. Death and hell entered God's creation when Adam sinned. Wherever there is sin, death and hell can stake their claim. The sinner is their rightful prey. And so, because of your own sin, death opens its mouth to swallow you in the grave. And hell licks its lips to consume whatever is left. Like blood that draws the shark. Your sins have drawn death and the devil right to you. And the one true God, the only one who could help you, is the very one you have sinned against. Yes, by your sins you have made yourself His enemy. What should He do for you? you and all your kind, who have taken the life and creation that He gave you and made such a mess of it, what He should do, He does not do. That is what the Scriptures call grace. Instead of standing against you, the Lord stands with you. He loves those who have hated Him.
He is faithful to those who have been unfaithful to Him. He calls the man who does not work righteous. And the ungodly man, He justifies. Just as He once stood with helpless Israel, He now stands with you against the fiercest and most terrible enemies our world has ever known, like blood that draws the shark. Your sins have drawn death and the devil to you. And so what does your Lord and Savior do? He takes the lies out of your mouth and puts them in His He takes the godlessness and hatred out of your heart and enshrines it in His. He takes all of the adultery and sexual immorality and filth out of your flesh and draws them into His flesh. He takes all your sin away from you and makes it His. Now you are clean, and He is sin. Now you are clean. Death and hell, they may growl and snap their jaws at you, but you are free from sin. They can make no claim on you. Now you are clean, and He is sin. Now death and hell and all their terrible might are drawn to Him and Him alone. And if you know something about the Lord, how He once stood with Israel against all Pharaoh's chariots and power, how He once stood with Joshua against impenetrable Jericho, how he once went out to save Israel from a few hundred thousand Assyrians all by himself. Yes, if you know a little something about your Lord, then when you see death striding straight at him and hell's army closing in around him, then you know he wouldn't have it any other way. And on Good Friday, that's all you see. Like some huge and horrible giant, death opens its mouth over him and swallows him cross and all. Like the shadow of some terrible monster, the blackness of hell's army covers him. And on Good Friday, that's all you see. But you do know who this is. The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, who is a man of war. It was three days later when the two Marys met the angel at the tomb, his appearance like lightning. And as they ran from that empty tomb with fear and great joy, behold, Jesus met them there. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. 
Blessed are those feet that the women held. To this very day, they still bear the nail marks, the scars that tell you of His great love for you. Blessed are those feet of His, for under one foot lies death, and under His other foot lies hell. And where do his eyes look? Then you know who he did it for. He did it for you. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Death and hell came after him. And look at them now. He did this for you. He is death's death. He is hell's hell. And this means something almost too great for words, dear Christian. Though you die, yet shall you live. That's what this means. As he is risen in his body, so shall you and all who believe be raised from the dead. So come, come all you faithless disciples who have deserted him, and hear what he calls you. He calls you his brothers, and he will make you his brothers in arms. Come, all you unrighteous, be baptized into him for your forgiveness and be clothed in the full armor of God. All newborn soldiers of the crucified bear on their brow the seal of Him who died. Come, all you sinners, and put a song on the angel's lips. Yes, the fiery-eyed army of heaven rejoices and gives thanks to God for one sinner who repents. Come, you Christmas and Easter Christians, and stand shoulder to shoulder and shield to shield with the army of Christ. Come, all you wounded and weary soldiers, receive the oil of absolution for your wounds, and be strengthened by the wine that is His blood. Come, you veterans of many wars, and see the golden evening brightens in the west. Soon, soon to faithful warriors cometh rest. Come, come one and all, this Easter morn, For Christ is risen, He stands victorious over death and hell. And He has given you the victory. Alleluia. Amen. Amen. I I cannot get enough of those uh, sermons. Just the oh man, the ones point me to Christ and Him crucified for our sins, raised again for our justification. 
There isn't a single emergent pastor on the planet who can preach like this. Not one. Their gospel, if it's even a gospel at all, is completely powerless. What Pastor Rody preached there, that's where the real power is at because that's the real story. Christ's death and resurrection for you, dear sinner, and what that means regarding your sin. Notice how he preached penal substitution. Notice how he preached Christ's bodily resurrection from the dead. There's no waffling here. There's no examining this in light of, well, you know, we live in a rationalistic world, and, you know, and materials philosophy would say that maybe that's not what happened. There's none of that stuff going on. And notice that Jesus here isn't presented as helping to, you know, resurrect your dead dreams and visions for your life or any of the other such nonsense. Nope. Just the bold proclamation, the same proclamation that the apostles made, is what they said was true. They were eyewitnesses of it. And the church today gives living voice to the apostles and their eyewitness testimony of Jesus when they preach like this. God grant us more pastors like Pastor Rody. All right, we are at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith, and just need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you and to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website. It's fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by the shed blood of Jesus Christ in your place on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and his resurrection bodily from the grave for your justification. Amen. 